Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And today we are here with a very special movie. A special request. Mm-hmm. This is Urban Legend from 1998. Which was a request from a listener, right? It was a request from a listener. Her birthday is May 18th, and this episode goes out to you. You know who you are. <laughs> you know who you are, and happy birthday. So we have watched this movie together once before. Yes, we did. Just as like a silly little thing. But I enjoyed it so much more the second time around. I feel the exact same way. So I'm just going to jump right into the ladies because there are so many of them. Awesome. So we start with our final girl, Natalie. She's played by Alicia Witt. She is also in Dune, The Exorcist TV series, The Walking Dead, Orange is the New Black. She's an accomplished film actress, TV actress, and musician. And she was nominated for a Saturn Award and a Fangoria Chainsaw Award for her role in this film. You mean this isn't Katherine Heigl? <laughs> it isn't. It looks exactly like she her. She does look a lot like her. <laughs> and then we have Brenda, who is played by Rebecca Gayhart. She is also in Scream 2. She's a sorority sister. She's the opposite to Portia Del Rossi, one of the two girls that are trying to get Sydney into that sorority. Oh. She's also in Santa's Sleigh, which is a <laughs> Christmas-themed horror movie, the sci-fi show Earth 2, and the non-sci-fi show Beverly Hills 90210. <laughs> Excellent. We have Sasha, who is played by Tara Reid. She is known for A Return to Salem's Lot, the entire Sharknado franchise. She is the main chick in the Sharknado franchise. She's also in Scrubs. She was a contestant on Big Brother UK. <laughs> She's also in lots of comedies, including The Big Lebowski, American Pie, Josie and the Pussycats, and hilariously, effing white in a parody of The Hunger Games called The Hungover Games. <laughs> effing white? Effing white. <laughs> I also thought it was an interesting piece of trivia that this role originally went to Sarah Michelle Gellar, but she couldn't film due to scheduling conflicts with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So it went to Tara Reid. Wow, Tara Reid, I really think, because her character has a gig as like the college radio anchor, and I love her radio voice. Yeah. I can't picture anybody else doing it. She did really well. Mm -hmm. We also have Tosh, who is played by Danielle Harris, and Danielle Harris is like horror royalty. She is known for her four installments in the Halloween franchise. She is in Halloween 4 and 5 and also Rob Zombie's remakes, Halloween 2007 and 2009. She's also in a movie called Stakeland. She's in the Hatchet franchise. She's in so many slashers and horror thrillers. And interestingly enough, she's also the voice of Debbie in The Wild Thornberries. What? <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow, she's even goth in The Wild Thornberries. She is. She's a reigning scream queen, and she was inducted into the Fangoria Hall of Fame in 2012. We also have Reese, who is played by Laura Devine, and Laura Devine is a fucking powerhouse. She is an award-winning actress and musician. She's known for the original Broadway production of Dreamgirls. Oh my god. She plays- <laughs> Yeah, she has a pivotal role in Grey's Anatomy. She's in way, way, way too many things that I couldn't list, but I had to list that she was in five movies in 1998, which is the year this movie came out. But she was also in five movies in the years 1997, 1999, and 2000. So she is a busy fucking lady. What a woman. She's amazing. She's in so many things. She is my favorite part of this movie. She's the best. Also, Dreamgirls. I don't know if you know this about me. <laughs> I'm, I don't think I do. Did you know that I literally love Dreamgirls? I knew that you were a musical stan, but not Dreamgirls specifically. Dreamgirls, I have the whole album. At one point in my life, I had the whole thing memorized. I probably lost a lot of it along the way. Anyway, if you haven't seen Dreamgirls, you gotta watch it. Maybe that'll be my birthday movie next year. <laughs> <laughs> Dreamgirls is a horror movie. <laughs> no, it could never be. It's amazing. 
And lastly, we have Michelle, who is played by Natasha Gregson Wagner. She's in a few vampire movies and then the show The 4400, which I remember liking as a tween. It is a like sci-fi thriller horror series. Going into some pre-plot trivia, the film itself won Best Original Score for a Horror Thriller Film at the International Film Music Critic Association Awards in 1998. It is scored by Christopher Young, who also scored Hellraiser. Ooh. This film also co-stars two of Hollywood's most iconic horror movie slashers, Brad Dourif, who portrays Chucky in the Child's Play films, and Robert England, who plays Freddy Krueger in the Nightmare on Elm Street films. Wait, is Robert England the professor? Yes. <gasps> He's Professor Wexler. It's all coming together. Yes. And Brad Dorif plays the gas station attendant. The film has been credited by both cinema and folklore scholars as being one of the first major films to redistribute the urban legends and folklore depicted within it to the public. The film was inspired by the huge success of Scream 1996. While that film was a self-aware satire film of horror tropes, this was a self-aware satire of urban legends. The film's negative reception was a result of many critics finding the film to be an imitation of Scream. So some interesting trivia about that. Director Jamie Blanks was considered for both Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer, but lost out to Wes Craven and Jim Gillespie, respectively, which may have had to do with the similarities between the three, which I'm going to point out along the way. Oh, as if like I could do it better than you. A little bit. I mean, he was considered for both films, so I think he's very similar in style to both of them. But I found myself independent of this knowledge, watching the movie and being like, oh my God, that's so Scream. Or, oh my God, that's so, I know what you did last summer. Wow, this guy really must have a hard on for Kevin Williamson (laughs) because he wrote both of those films. But then once I read this, I was like, oh shit, that might have a lot to do with why stylistically he took some inspiration from those things. Jamie Blanks also directed Valentine 2011 in a few Australian horror films. He's an Australian filmmaker. And lastly, Joshua Jackson, who plays Damon, and Rebecca Gayhart, who plays Brenda, both appeared in Scream 2 in 1997, another teen slasher, one year later. So Joshua Jackson is one of Brandy's film cronies in the film scene in the beginning. And then Rebecca Gayhart plays one of the sorority sisters. So you ready to get into it? I'm ready. How do we open? We have a young woman driving through some windy, windy roads in the rain. She is listening to a college radio show. She seems to be college age herself. There's some girl on the radio taking a phone call from an eager listener who wants to ask advice about what to do now that she has been stealing her roomie's birth control pills. And now her roommate is pregnant and dropping out of school. And she doesn't know where she's going to find another roommate (laughs) in time. Quickly, this driver gets tired of this college show and she puts on Total Eclipse of the Heart and starts singing along. On this episode of Who Would I Be in a Movie, I am this woman (laughs) (laughs) singing to Total Eclipse of the Heart badly in the car in the rain. She almost crashes into an oncoming driver because she's not quite paying attention, which is kind of our first fake out. Then she stops for gas. She's getting low. I don't know what this girl is doing. Maybe I'm not her, but maybe I am. (laughs) Deep down in my depths. (laughs) So I also wrote they must be in Jersey because somebody needs to help her pump her gas. That's exactly what I said. I'm like, are they in New Jersey? Are there other states that make you do that? Maybe. I don't know. To my knowledge, Jersey is the only one. So we might be in Jersey. This feels like it could very easily be Jersey. Anyway, a man comes out in the rain to help pump her gas. Based on like the sound effects and like the scoring, he is definitely coded to be kind of sinister. 
loud music when he knocks on the window. And of course, she's a woman driving alone and he's a strange man. We see him glance at the car, seeming like he's about to pump gas, but then he quickly runs inside the gas station, comes out with Michelle's card and is like, your credit card company is on the phone. I need you to come inside. This is obviously shady to Michelle. She bags some pepper spray before she goes inside following the gas station attendant, but she realizes that no one is on the phone. She becomes immediately suspicious. There's a tussle between her and the gas station attendant where she sprays him with the pepper spray and escapes, leaving the man yelling after her, trying to get her attention. But she gets in her car and drives away just before we finally hear the gas station attendant, who, by the way, has a stutter, finally able to yell, someone's in the back seat. So this whole time he has been trying to warn her or save her from whoever is in the back seat, perhaps likely preying on her, but he is just not able to get that communication out to her in time and she is off. So she's driving off, total eclipse of the heart, it's still going as she's <laughs> sobbing. It's pretty amazing. I was laughing a lot. But someone with an axe emerges from the back seat and kills her. And then we get some establishing shots of Pendleton University. It is nighttime, and we are listening to the radio show Under the Covers with Sasha. (laughs) She is on the phone with another student talking about how this student is concerned because she swallowed the semen of her boyfriend and thinks she needs to get her stomach pumped. And she's like, girl, (laughs) you don't need to worry about that frat boy protein shake and starts milking her microphone as if it's a handjob. And I'm like, dude... I'm like, this radio show is half safe sex talk and half call her daddy is Mm. pretty much what I said. (laughs) Both informative, but also raunchy. And then we get a location switch to Sasha's friends listening to the radio station in a coffee shop. We are introduced to Parker, Natalie, Brenda, and then eventually Paul. Parker is telling a story about how there's an urban legend on the campus of how a professor went crazy, killed a bunch of students in this one dormitory, and then killed himself. And now there is a frat party to celebrate the massacre each year. But Paul, who is a writer for the student newspaper, calls Parker out about the story being fake, about how it's an urban legend on every campus in the Northeast, which supports that we're close to New Jersey. Yeah! It is established that, you know, Paul thinks that he is this hotshot writer of some sorts, and Brenda is into him. By the way, Paul is played by cult leader Jared Leto, Mm -hmm. which I read apparently that Jared Leto has refused to acknowledge his role in this movie in interviews for his entire career. (laughs) Like, it has been, like, a whole thing that anytime interviewers try to ask him about urban legend, he just, like, refuses to answer the question. Like, he's so embarrassed by it because it was so early in his career, and maybe it's a bad movie. I don't know. He does not acknowledge that he was in this movie at all. I will say he is definitely, like, levels above everybody else. He's the best actor in this movie. He's putting his whole soul into this fucking role as Paul, the newspaper guy. Yeah. (laughs) He's, like, leagues above everybody else in this movie. Maybe except Rebecca Gayhart toward the end. But, like, other than that, (laughs) yeah, he's absolutely outacting everybody around him. Natalie and Brenda leave their gal pals and they are talking about the Stanley Hall massacre, which we just covered in the previous scene. They talk about some more urban legends and Brenda convinces Natalie to come raise the dead with her and do the Bloody Mary urban legend in front of the boarded door of Stanley Hall. That's not how you do it, you guys. Yeah, you need a mirror. (laughs) Where's your mirror? 
So they do the Bloody Mary thing, very akin to Candyman. They start taking turns of who's going to say it first and last. And they hear a scream within, but that scream ends up being a jump scare by their friend, Damon. Yeah, and we met Damon in the previous scene. He's got his bleached blonde hair. Now we can see, based on him scaring his girlfriends, he's a little bit of a prankster, jokester kind of guy. He likes to push the limits. But, you know, he seems loved by his friends enough. He leaves them behind. And Natalie, now that she is on her own, her and Brenda have split ways, runs into a custodian on the way home, who, again, based on the music score, is supposed to be intimidating. It's a little bit of like a jump scare moment. It's giving prom night energy with that janitor. Yeah. This movie, so far, two times in the first like five minutes, codes just everyday average people as very sinister. <laughs> But it's also 1998, so here we are. As she finally gets to her dorm, she opens the door, turns on the light, and finds her roommate having sex. Quickly turns off the light. We can see that there's tension between her and her roommate. (laughs) And then she goes to bed. Yeah, it's establishing a routine that her roommate has a lot of casual sex, and she uses her headphones to drown out the noise of them having sex at night. Yeah. I would hate to be her. (laughs) Yes. Even though Tosh seems like a whole vibe, I would be friends with Tosh. Yeah, you would be friends with Tosh. I was watching their dynamic as roommates, and there were points where I was like, I really don't think Tosh is that big of a bitch. No, she's really not. (laughs) Like, Natalie, it's like, you can wait to use the phone, okay? Yeah. Or at least give notice. Exactly. But they're not really a match made in roommate heaven, which we are seeing here. No, they're not compatible. The next morning, we get our titular classroom scene. We meet Professor Wexler, a.k.a. Freddy fucking Krueger. I can't believe I didn't notice this. That's Robert England, 100%. (laughs) He looks so young. I guess I'm used to seeing him in all the makeup. I was about to say, like, this is a full 14 years after A Nightmare on Elm Street. So he's discussing how folklore is a gauge for the values of the society that creates them. He starts going over some different urban legends and talking about how contemporary folklore is passed down as urban legends. So he kind of goes over the When a Stranger Calls plot, (laughs) like how there is a man calling from inside the house about a babysitter who's watching the children, and everyone assumes that something like this happened in their own hometown. There's so many variations. And Brenda calls this out, being like, this actually happened in my hometown. So this allows her to get bullied into volunteering for an experiment for Wexler. He makes her eat some Pop Rocks and then offers her a Coke, which she very scaredly doesn't want to drink because of the urban legend of eating Pop Rocks and Coke making your stomach explode. He then reveals that the kid who supposedly died from this urban legend is very much alive and well. So then Damon volunteers to do it instead has this whole like fake out death scene where it's a big prank. And again, this big whole thing about how the Pop Rocks and Coke urban legend isn't real. And then class is over. As everybody leaves the lecture hall into the quad, we see news of Michelle's murder has now spread to campus because she was a student at that college as well. But we see Dean Adams on campus and campus police officer Reese. They are trying to squash the story, particularly Dean Adams. He doesn't want people reading about this. Paul is there, of course. He wrote and published the story. He's trying to say that he has rights to educate the students on campus. But Dean Adams is like, hell no, and starts trying to confiscate all of the copies of the newspaper. And Natalie also isn't happy with Paul for being insensitive and sensationalizing the story of Michelle dying. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Then the friends are all watching the news story together, very much a la Scream. The suspect is the gas attendant. I loved how Sasha was like, my voice is probably the last thing that she heard. Can you imagine? (laughs) This is very self-centered, very funny. But we also know that it's not true because she was like, I'm listening to Total Eclipse of the Heart. Thanks. Thanks. (laughs) They asked Natalie if they knew her and she claims that she didn't. And Damon pulls a very stew joke. Damon's like, I knew her. It's so sad. She gave great head, which is funny because Michelle was decapitated. And I was like, okay. So crude. But then I was like, okay, Stu, live her alone. (gasps) It's the same joke. It is the same joke. It's the same joke by the same character where it's like, come on, live her alone. Wow. That's like the first thing I noticed. And I was like, ooh, okay. Here's these (laughs) associations between this and Scream. So after this moment, Natalie gets back to her dorm and pulls out an old yearbook from her closet. And as she pages through, she lands on a page that reveals that she actually knew Michelle. They went to the same high school together and they were co-cheer captains together. She lied. She's a liar. So later, Damon meets up with Natalie and tries to console her. He's like, let's go on a drive. You know, I'm actually a good listener, despite what some other people might say. And as they park off in kind of a wooded area by like a bluff, isn't that, that makes me think of prom night. (laughs) Prom night, the bluff. (laughs) The bluff. He starts trying to make some advances. He has this whole story about how he had a girlfriend that died of a syndrome. And of course, Natalie is not falling for this trick. She denies his sexual advances, tells him to take her home. And he's like, okay, fine. First, let me go pee. But when Damon goes outside to pee, somebody in a hooded jacket attacks him. Natalie starts catching on to the fact that something is going on. Damon is taking a while to come back. And when she gets out of the car, she sees this hooded figure coming towards her. She freaks out, gets back in the car, tries to start the car. Oh my gosh, the scariest part of the whole movie is when we're wondering if she's going to roll up her car windows and die. Right, exactly. (laughs) But then there's crushing on the car roof. We can see like through the denting that the assailant is on top of the car roof. Natalie doesn't know this, but we know this, that Damon has been hanged and his toes are barely touching the top of the roof so that if the car moves forward, not only will it take away any sort of footing he has, but it will bring the rope he's attached to with it and hang him higher in the tree. Of course, Natalie doesn't know this. She doesn't know where the heck Damon is. She thinks she's just getting away from the killer. She guns it forward. Damon is lifted high into the tree. Obviously, she can't get much further because there is a rope attached to her car. What does she do? Somehow she ends up out of the car. So she throws it in reverse because the killer is on the hood. Mm. So she throws the killer off. But then when she reverses so suddenly, Damon's body (sighs) comes crashing through the windshield dead. Right. Which causes her to get out and start running. How could I forget that part? And she runs, as you do. And then we switch scenes. Reese is watching some TV cop movie and reenacting some scenes, like being the big bad cop that she is. And is interrupted when Natalie runs in and asks for help. So Reese drives her out to the scene, but the car is missing. Damon is missing. And although Natalie claims that the same person that killed Michelle probably killed Damon, Reese reveals that the gas station attendant has been taken for questioning that afternoon. So it could not have been him. It has also been revealed in previous dialogue that Damon was supposed to be going on a ski trip for a bachelor party that weekend. So the fact that Damon might have pulled a prank and then disappeared into the night is not unlike his character, so no one else is concerned. So later, Natalie visits the library where she finds the Encyclopedia of Urban Legends. 
I was like, this is the conveniently placed professor in this movie. (laughs) There's a moment where we think the assailant might be in the library with her, but we realize it's just Sasha looking for the Kama Sutra. I wrote that this was giving the Halloween episode of Boy Meets World. Have you seen that episode? Probably not for like 15 years. Yeah, well, I mean, like the idea is that there's like a killer in the library and they're like chasing them through the stacks and everything like that. Do you remember when we were in college and there was a flasher in the library? Oh, yeah. Whatever happened with that? I was on the silent floor too, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) But intercut with this, there's also Tosh using a bunch of goth chat rooms, chatting Mm. with like random guys on there. And I wrote, LOL, Tosh was definitely on Vampire Freaks. Do you know what Vampire Freaks is? No. (laughs) (laughs) This is a MySpace era (laughs) website that is now primarily a clothing store for goth apparel, but it was also a chat room for goth people that me as a 13-year-old probably definitely made an account too early on and would chat with other alternative people on there. But this is the medium in which Tosh is communicating with all of her (laughs) other goth boyfriends, probably on Vampire Freaks. That's amazing. The guy she's IMing, you know, they're hitting it off. She goes out to get some provisions. But when she returns, she sees a message she had previously sent asking, what room are we meeting in? The message is blinking, yours. And as she processes that, she is promptly attacked. We can hear her screams from the hallway. And Natalie comes home from the library hearing these noises. And of course, thinking that Tosh is just having sex. She enters the room, does not turn on the light. And then goes to sleep listening to her headphones. I love this scene. (laughs) Because it's obviously been established that Tosh has rough sex or like has vocal sex. So the fact that Tosh is being strangled to death next to her and Natalie's like, ah. Yeah. No problem. Oh my gosh. It's also maddening though. I do appreciate that so much of that scene that happened before comes back in this moment. So Natalie wakes up the next morning to see blood pulling out from under Tosh's covers She uncovers her body to find that she is dead with her wrists slit and a message on the wall written in blood saying, aren't you glad you didn't turn on the light? Next, we're seeing Natalie talking to the Dean about her experiences. Dean and Reese call the death a suicide, but Natalie insists someone else was there. But it seems like the public opinion that Tosh was some sort of quote-unquote manic depressive because she was goth. There's even like overhead of one of the students saying, no need to check her pulse. She's looked like that for years. Oh my God, these kids are ruthless. They are ruthless. This She kind of reminds me a little bit of Stokely. Yes. Like she has that goth alternative energy love her love tosh love stokely Mm -hmm. justice for them both (laughs) but brenda approaches comforts natalie but natalie isn't ready for that and kind of brushes her off but then paul approaches natalie obviously there to get the fucking story but instead of asking natalie about tosh paul asks natalie about michelle saying listen i know that you knew her i called the high school i learned that you went to the same high school as her why did you lie And Michelle's like, so you couldn't exploit her death anymore? Again, my first instance of writing, Paul is acting like he's fucking CSI and not a college op ad writer. (laughs) Like, what the fuck? Calm down. But Natalie instead lets it slip that she thinks that Tosh and Michelle were murdered. Also that Damon might be murdered and fills him in on her urban legend murderer theory. And it also happens that tonight is the 25th anniversary of the Stanley Hall massacre previously mentioned. And that seems to be the thing that gets Paul to bite at least a little bit. Like, okay, maybe there might be some motivation here for something like this, as outlandish as it might sound, to happen. 
They go to the records and look for the 1973 book, which would have information in it about a Stanley Hall massacre if there was one, but they can't find it. That year is missing. And then they hear a custodian working in the hallway outside and ask him, do you know anything about this? And he says they should talk to Wexler, the folklore professor. So Natalie and Paul sneak into Wexler's office for evidence, which is a cool fucking office. It's like really big. And then there's like a big hidden room. And inside that room closet area, Natalie finds a coat that looks like the one her attacker was wearing when she was with Damon, including an axe just propped on the floor. They hear the professor come in. They hide in the closet. I said very the faculty of them. Yes. Oh, my God. The nurse's office. Yes, exactly. But Wexler does a jump scare, of course. They think they're safe and can come out, and he's there. Uh So then we find ourselves in the dean's office with the dean, Reese, Wexler, Natalie, and Paul, talking about their accusations of Wexler being the killer. Dean instead sends Reese and Wexler out of the room and calls Natalie out for a charge that she has on her record for reckless endangerment and tells Paul he's off the paper. So Dean's very much of the opinion of you two are starting shit. There's no reason for you to start shit. Paul, again, thinks he's being denied a Pulitzer for being off the school paper, (laughs) interrogates Natalie to no avail of being like, what do you know? What are you hiding from me? So then we get a scene of Brenda swimming alone. Natalie is watching her from the gallery above and sees a person in a parka approaching the pool. And obviously, we know that people in parkas are not safe in this movie. So Natalie attempts to break the window, trying to warn Brenda, but the person in the parka actually just ends up being another student who's wearing a cover-up. So then we find Brenda and Natalie in the locker room, and Brenda's asking why she's being so irrational, and Natalie reveals that she actually did know Michelle, and in a flashback scene, we learn that her and Michelle were high school friends. Michelle was driving, and they did this urban legend where there is a high beam trick, where if somebody at night had their high beams off, you're supposed to flash that person to remind them to turn their high beams on, but the urban legend is you're supposed to chase that person. Like, did you understand? I guess like decorum would say if you're driving down the street and you see somebody who doesn't have their headlights on, you flash your high beams. So you let the person know, hey, your headlights are not on. That's dangerous. Right. Courtesy. But the urban legend is that people, whether it's for a gang initiation or not, according to this urban legend, it has to do with like gang initiations. They purposely keep their headlights off and whoever flashes their high beams at them will then be pursued and chased off the road and killed. I have heard this a million bajillion times before, but I mean, I don't know. It's an urban legend. So essentially, they do that. They run a person off the road, but I don't think that they meant to take it that far. I think they just meant to scare somebody, but they do end up running a person off the road who ends up dying. And this is where I wrote, I think this director likes Kevin Williamson because damn, I know what you did last summer. Yeah! Because that's essentially what it is, is that, you know, David Egan killed this person a year afterwards, and then they run into this accident, and they kill David Egan, so they think, and then it's this year later, like, that's exactly like what we're dealing with. So I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. So Natalie tells Brenda that she couldn't forgive herself, and that's why her and Michelle grew apart. Essentially, they got away with it, right? Yeah, just a year of probation for literally killing a person. Yeah. yeah. Brenda's like, okay, let's get your mind off of this. Come to this massacre party tonight. Let's get your mind off of this. (laughs) Come to this massacre party. (laughs) Just come to this massacre party. And I still have this huge crush on Paul, just so you know. That's also very Scream, too. Yeah. Like, let's have a party because people have been murdered. Yeah. I mean, that's literally (laughs) Stu's party in the first one. 
Paul is cleaning out his office because his editor has fired him over the Michelle story due to the dean's interference, and he finds a paper in his office that names Wexler as the sole survivor of the Stanley Hall massacre, and then we see the janitor quickly leaving the scene, which is suggesting to us that the janitor has left this information for Paul to find. So then we're cut to the dean, who is getting in his car to drive home. He very smartly checks his backseat for any intruders, which again is a big urban legend. There's a Reese jump scare. Reese wants to add more police presence on campus just due to it being the 25th anniversary, but the dean tells Reese not to worry about it, not to contact the outside authorities, and not to give in to all of the rumors, and that he has even gone out of his way to let the outside authorities know to expect a lot of prank calls that evening, which is telling us that there's going to be no interference <laughs> for the evening. Reese leaves, and Dean is quickly slashed by his ankles by someone hiding under his car, and as the Dean tries to crawl away, he is run over by his own car. Oh my gosh. Cut to fraternity party. Parker is having an excellent time with all of his bros. Paul arrives with the old newspaper article in hand and tries to find Natalie, who he does find. He relays to her the information he discovered. And through this very tense moment and these heightened emotions, they end up kissing each other. But Brenda returns with Natalie's beer, sees that, you know, her friend has just kissed this guy she had a crush on, gets upset and leaves, very frustrated and jealous. So Natalie is like, damn, I fucked up, goes off to try to find her. Meanwhile, Reese is investigating Wexler's office. How did she know to look in that office? She was hearing noises from it. Oh, okay. And we notice that the axe from before is gone, and she slips and falls in a huge puddle of blood. We cut back to the party. Paul tries to talk to Parker to end it, but Parker like speaks up in front of the whole crowd and tries to embarrass him, basically making a scene about how crazy this idea is that there's an urban legend serial killer. So clearly Paul is not getting through to Parker. Sasha is also growing more and more disgusted by this party. The DJ had just had a conversation with her about how he has screams on his disc track that he lifted from an actual 911 call. So she's like, oh, fuck this. I'm going to the radio station. So she leaves. A little while later, Parker, still having a great time, gets a phone call and is asked a question about where are you? And Parker claps back like, oh, let me guess. The call is coming from inside the house. Yeah, he thinks it's an urban legend. And the caller is like, oh, actually, this urban legend is about the woman who tries to dry her dog off in the microwave. Oh, God. So Parker goes downstairs, gets into the kitchen area right as the microwave dings. It's completed. It's microwaving. And he opens the microwave door and we can see the cooked, exploded remains of his dog. So he freaks out, goes to the bathroom and throws up. The hooded figure is in there, shuts the door, shoves a beer bong down his throat and funnels in Pop Rocks and Drano and poisons him to death. I love this. (laughs) (laughs) Reese tries to call for help. Of course, there's no avail because the cops have been warned to expect a lot of prank calls. So Sasha is live on the radio and we see in a very haunting scene as she's talking to somebody live on the radio, a killer attacks her tech in the background and takes him down and then the line goes dead. And then the axe man goes after Sasha. Her screams are heard live on the radio. So Natalie and the party goers hear exactly what's going on. 
Natalie goes running in the rain after Sasha as Sasha is being chased through the student union. And this is where I had like a logistical question because everything is still being heard very clearly on the radio. I'm like, is Sasha mic'd up on her body? I just, I don't think they thought about it. I don't think they thought about it that hard, but like she's running through the entire student union and everything is still very clearly heard on the radio because Reese then hears it and it alerts her to go check it out. And I'm like, if she has left the studio, she should not be heard at Mm -hmm. this point. So is she mic'd up? I don't know. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Her and the killer play some cat and mouse. The killer throws her over some stairs. She drops and runs away. I was like, I kind of love a chase scene in a student union, LOL, because you and I like... There was like a year of college we both fucking lived in that student union. And can you like fucking imagine being chased through that scene, how familiar it feels to you, but also how intimidating it is? Yeah. That's also kind of like thrilling for me. I don't know. Reese is after her. Natalie's after her. Natalie arrives just in time to see the person in the park is swinging an axe on Sasha from a gallery up above and Sasha dies by a bunch of axe blows. So Natalie runs away and runs into Paul and they go to his dorm room and Natalie becomes suspicious of Paul right away because where were you while all of this was happening? You're covered in rain. What the fuck is going on? But Paul assures her they're on the same side. Natalie is able to prove that the phone line is dead when he says it is. So she begins to trust him again. And then there's a Brenda jump scare being like, oh my God, what the fuck is happening? So Paul leads them both through the rain as Reese finds Sasha's body in the student union. Paul, Natalie, and Brenda end up in a car together driving through the storm and stopping at a gas station to call for help. Paul heads inside the gas station, leaving Brenda and Natalie behind. And while they're sitting in the car, Natalie is complaining about some stench coming from the back seat, but they kind of ignore it long enough to make up. Brenda apologizes for reacting so poorly to Paul and Natalie kissing. She says something really sweet about you guys are great together. They have a moment where they hug, but then they hear a phone ring from the trunk. They are creeped out, obviously. So they get out, open the trunk, and they find Professor Wexler's dead body in Paul's trunk. I love this moment. They look at Paul inside. Paul looks at them, look at him, and then they just both (laughs) bolt in the opposite direction. Paul obviously senses something bad has happened, so he runs out of the gas station and a chase ensues. We have Natalie and Brenda running away, Paul running behind them, yelling after Natalie, and then eventually Natalie gets separated from Brenda as well, and she is just on her own. Natalie makes it to the road where the janitor in a truck picks her up and it's becoming clear that we're not supposed to trust the janitor. He's like, I ain't gonna bite ya. Like he's not being very reassuring. He says that the door won't open from the inside. She's getting more suspicious, more suspicious. As the janitor keeps driving, he sees somebody without their headlights on coming toward them. So he's like, all these damn kids and flashes his lights. And she's like, no, (laughs) because then this car then turns around and begins chasing them and then ends up running them off the road where the janitor is incapacitated. And Natalie, again, is unharmed and is running off through the woods. Natalie ends up running to campus where she slams the emergency signal to ask for help, but then instead hears Brenda screaming from inside Stanley Hall, so she breaks in and investigates and runs through a final girl circuit of seeing Parker's dead body, the Dean's dead body, and Damon's dead bodies, enters a room full of candles a la Wanna Play Mommy and Daddy from Jennifer's body. Natalie sees Brenda's body laid out on a mattress, assumes that she's dead because she's not moving. She begins to cry, but then Brenda wakes up, smiles, and knocks Natalie out. Uh Uh-huh. 
Next thing we know, Natalie is coming to and finds herself tied up to the bed with the killer standing over her. But oop, when she takes off her hood, it's Brenda, which we knew, but now Natalie knows. And Brenda, very erratically, in an upbeat, menacing sort of way, begins explaining to Natalie who she is and that she's going to get her back because... Surprise, the boy that Natalie and Michelle killed years ago in that car crash was Brenda's boyfriend and the love of her life. I wrote, ooh, she brought a slide deck. (laughs) (laughs) She literally did. She had some projector set up with a slide deck of like, do you recognize this boy? Do you recognize him now? And I just thought it was so funny. I kind of love that too. It's like, she is like, I have a presentation tonight. I have to make sure the lighting is right. I have to make sure I have my technology set up. And then once Natalie realizes, she gets in her face and screams, ding, 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 ding. And I'm like, oh, I fucking love Brenda as a villain. She's so unhinged Mm -hmm. and like menacing. And I wrote like, okay, this movie is Scream. And I know what you did last summer because we have the Billy Loomis heel turn where he's like, oh, your bitch mother. She's no Sharon Stone. La la la. Like, this is this. Yeah. And I know what you did last summer. Like, you killed my kid. Like, it's the same thing. It's just them combined. It's like crazy. I love it. But Brenda decides, oh, I'm going to do one of my favorite ULs. (laughs) I love that she calls it a UL. I was cracking up. And that she's going to do the kidney heist, where she's going to steal Natalie's kidney. For what purpose? I don't know. I think she just wants to kill Natalie in a very innovative way, like akin to an urban legend. So Mm -hmm. she's going to do surgery on her. And as Brenda is stabbing into Natalie, Reese arrives with a gun and gets Brenda away from her, gets Natalie untied. But Brenda's able to pull a fast one, slices at Reese, and Brenda is able to get her gun away from her and shoot Reese so that Reese is incapacitated. So as Brenda holds Natalie at gunpoint, Brenda says that killing Natalie will bring Paul closer to her, but then Paul rounds the corner and begins clapping. Yeah, and he's saying things like, you're right, Brenda, this is perfect, everyone's gonna hear about this story. He's very much appealing to Brenda, very much fulfilling this idea that Brenda had started to establish where her and Paul were going to be so close and be together. And she wasn't going to let Natalie take another guy away from her. But once Paul asks for the gun, Brenda's like, you're cute, but you're not that cute. (laughs) So she starts doing eeny, meeny, miny, mo to see which one of them she's going to shoot first. (laughs) And then thank the Lord, Reese wakes up and shoots Brenda. She's like, Mo. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) It's like the best part of the movie. It is the best part. But then as Brenda is dealing with her arm wound, Natalie regains control of the gun, shoots her out the window, and she falls out. So Paul and Natalie start driving away from campus for help for Reese, especially who's bleeding on the ground. And Natalie says to Paul, this will become a legend too, you know, but it'll change a little. Brenda will become a guy, you'll be a cop, and I'll be in some insane asylum. Paul says, so if this is an urban legend, when do we get the twist? Brenda then pops out from the backseat with an axe and starts battling them both. And this is where I said, why not just stop the car? (laughs) Because Paul is driving through this rain and he's still going at high speed while Natalie and Brenda are battling with an axe in the backseat and he's feeling like he needs to keep going. I'm like, just stop the car. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. But instead, Paul crashes the car into a bridge and the momentum sends Brenda crashing through the windshield out of the car and into the river, assumedly dead. Yeah, she floats away down the river. 
Paul and Natalie hug as the flashing lights of the police on their way are seen off screen. And then we cut to sometime later. It's another college campus, much like the one we saw earlier. There's a group of college friends sitting around discussing the recent Pendleton massacre and the urban legends, very similar to that scene we saw at the coffee shop in the opening of the movie. Then when the story is over, one student says, I believe you, but I'm going to tell you how it really happened. And as the camera pans around, it reveals that the student at this college is Brenda, still alive with a different hairstyle. And she's about to tell them how the story really happened. And the movie's over. So going into some post-plot trivia, it's interesting because we see this in the establishing shot. Pendleton University's motto, amicum optimum factum, in Latin translates to the best friend did it. (gasps) Whoa! It's also hinted at in the last name of the killer being Bates. This is perhaps a nod to Norman (gasps) Bates, the killer in Psycho. Oh my gosh, I love it! This movie also turned into a franchise. It's followed by two sequels, Urban Legend Final Cut in 2002 and Urban Legend Bloody Mary in 2005. I'm pretty sure that Reese reprises her role, at least in the second one, which is super exciting. I think (laughs) Rebecca Gayhart does too, but I'm not sure. So this is from the Urban Legend Wiki. This is just a list of all of the urban legends that were reenacted or referenced throughout the entire movie. So first one being Michelle is murdered by the killer in the back seat. The coverage of Michelle's murder in the university newspaper is covered up by the dean referencing the university cover-up of a campus murder and the subsequent fears of the students referencing the Hatchet Man legend, which is an unnamed killer targeting college campuses at random. The origins of the latter have been traced to the serial killer Richard Speck. Brenda and Natalie atope to invoke Bloody Mary at the entrance of Stanley Hall. Professor Wexler talks about the Pop Rocks and Soda thing. Damon is hanging from a tree while Natalie is waiting in the car below, which is that, like, Hookman legend. The gang violence initiation with the headlights. Natalie finds her roommate strangled to death in her bed with a note, aren't you glad you didn't turn on the light? Which, it's not explaining what the urban legend is, but, like, it's certainly one. maybe that's what it is. The ankle being slashed from under the car legend, which is a thing. A guest at the fraternity party claims the song Love Rollercoaster contains a real murder scream. Meanwhile, Sasha screams for her life on air during a radio broadcast. Oh. Parker finds the remains of his dog in the microwave, resembling the old lady dries wet dog in the microwave legend. And Brenda attempts to reenact the kidney heist on Natalie. In some of the referenced ones, a caller on Sasha's radio show states that she replaced her roommate's birth control bills with baby aspirin. Another caller says that she wants to have her stomach pumped after performing oral sex and ingesting semen. Professor Wexler discusses the babysitter and the man upstairs legend, and Parker suggests spider eggs being in bubble yum being the killer's next move. Mm. So that led me mostly in talking about the comparisons to Scream and I Know What You Did last summer, that it's interesting that the scorned or vengeful person is a woman in this movie because Brenda is avenging her dead boyfriend. I wrote, it's also interesting that Rebecca Gayhart is in Scream 2, the first instance of a woman being ghostface for the same reason. So Mrs. Loomis avenging Billy Loomis's death. But I also said it was interesting commentary that Natalie calls out that in stories to come, Brenda will be a man. It's almost the idea that a woman's anger can't be scary over time, except for maybe Bloody Mary. That's one of the only urban legends that we find where like a woman is terrifying. Yeah, that's a really good point. I feel like women can't be terrifying over time unless they have some kind of like magical supernatural property. Mm -hmm. 
So that's why I said Brenda's characterization is good until the obsession with Paul is used as a motivator. It puts her into that unhinged territory, which is fine, but I feel like it lessens her punch. Compare her to Billy Loomis, who is instead faking his attraction to Sidney Prescott, ultimately to seek revenge, instead of Brenda taking her anger out on Natalie because of the accident and Paul's attraction to her. Mm. So this led me to an article that I found, which this entire article is amazing, but I picked out some of the best parts in terms of what it had to do with urban legend. The article is, When the Final Girl is Not a Girl Reconsidering the Gender Binary in the Slasher Film by Jeremy Marin, and this is on Brenda's motivation. So he writes, Even after Brenda is revealed to be the urban legend's killer, the narrative still permits her character to be read according to Carol Clover's conception of the feminized male monster if we decentralize the focus on gender. In the duration of the film, it is revealed that Natalie played a part in a prank based on an urban legend that resulted in the death of a young man. While Brenda holds Natalie hostage, she reveals that the young man was a boyfriend whom she was going to marry, and the murders that she carried out were inspired by a desire for revenge. If Clover's conception of the slasher monster as an emasculated male that can never assume the position of subject is altered only slightly, a strict adherence to Clover's theory can actually be seen here. If the body of the monster does not have to be male, any body that is destined to remain within the abject can be viewed as a Cloverian monster. The work of feminist theorist Judith Butler helps illuminate this in her discussion of what sorts of bodies are forced to consist of in these pre-symbolic abject spaces in her 1993 book, Bodies That Matter. Butler claims that the realm of heterosexually imperative subject requires the simultaneous production of a domain of abject beings, those who are not yet subjects, but who form constitutive outside to the domain of the subject. This abject designates here precisely those unlivable and uninhibitable zones of social life which are nevertheless densely populated by those who do not enjoy the status of the subject, but whose living under the sign of the unlivable is required to circumscribe the domain of the subject. So that's a lot of words. What I think that means, what Judith Butler is saying, is that in order to be a oppressed subject, there needs to be a livable subject, and you can like float between those two spaces. Last week with the Woman in Black episode, we talked a little bit about the abject, where like the woman in black inhabits that space outside of what society deems acceptable as the scorned woman. And so is this saying something similar, that Brenda is inhabiting this abject space? She exists in some kind of liminal in-between space? Well, Mara goes on to say, Okay. If the slasher film monster is thus considered as a body forced to exist outside of the domain of the heterosexually imperative subject, Brenda's actions clearly align her with the castrated male monster of Clover's theory. About to enter into the patriarchal union of marriage, Brenda's journey into the realm of heterosexually imperative subject was interrupted when her heterosexual partner was killed. (gasps) As the marriage of Brenda and her boyfriend would see the symbolic joining of two people as one, his death becomes her metaphorical castration, marking the end of her journey towards subjectivity and dooming her to exist as a castrated being in the abject. Brenda's desire for Paul and her anger at Paul's affection for Natalie further suggests that Brenda's inability to enter the domain of the heterosexual subject is the source of her monstrosity. That tracks, right? Yes, because she is, quote, castrated by her fiancé's death. 
like she mentions, I'm not letting you get in the way of me and another man. Like she sees Paul not just as a crush, but the opportunity to restore what she lost. And the idea that she would lose him to Natalie, like she lost her boyfriend to Natalie and Michelle, probably angers her a lot because it would keep her in that in-between space. Absolutely. (gasps) I love that. Isn't that so interesting? Usually we see male-coded monsters having similar motivations, right? Like revenge. And Brenda has the same motivation. And it's as masculine. It's like masculine coded, but at the same time, it's like she's denied her feminine piece of the pie. She's denied her wifehood. If we're looking at this as a traditional heteronormative lifestyle that she was seeking, she's denied her eventual motherhood, right? So it's like masculine rage over, it seems like, what she saw as her feminine right. Yes. Because originally I was like, okay, I was with Brenda when she was just speaking revenge. I was with her when she was killing everybody because (laughs) of the boyfriend. But then when she was simultaneously obsessed with Paul, I'm like, oh no, it's turned you into this hysterical woman that Mm. we've seen, this obsessive, unrequited, hysterical woman that we've seen in this crazy killer position. But talking about her in a Cloverian aspect, like it's holding up patriarchal ideas. Yeah. Which again is very similar to our discussion last week with A Woman in Black, because everything that we see is a suggestion of the failure to hold up patriarchal ideas. And Brenda kind of is that to its extreme. It's like, oh, you won't let me have a white picket fence and a husband and a kid. I'm going to murder everybody. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like so out of left field almost. And it is interesting thinking too about all the connections that you've drawn between Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer. In Scream, we saw the boyfriend faking his attraction to Sydney, like you said. And in this, we're seeing the best friend faking that. And we've talked about this before, like how sometimes tension in a friendship can seem so much more traumatic than in a romantic relationship, especially between like two women. Mm -hmm. It does bring with it like a certain level of betrayal, like an extra layer of something. I remember the first time I saw this, I was pissed. I was like, no way. Fuck you. (laughs) Not Brenda. Like I couldn't accept it like I could for some reason with Scream and Billy Loomis. Is it because I'm just not used to seeing somebody like Brenda in horror movies? Is it because it was something that was harder for me to visualize or understand? Is it something that maybe I found too painful to imagine? Too personal? Yeah. Too close to home? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, looking at it this time, and especially like with the way the movie ends with this really cyclical feeling of these continuing evolving urban legends... I do appreciate this movie a lot more. It is outlandish, but I think urban legends are. And so it felt like it came to this really appropriate conclusion where it was nodding to, yes, this is an outlandish story, but that's what stories can be. And they are perpetuated further and further and they become capstones of our culture. I'm really curious as to see the ground that the other two covered. I didn't really look into it. I know the third one was straight to DVD, so just talking about like how far that was able to reach, I don't know, but I can see where it was really drawing off the success of Scream in terms of like, oh my god, horror movie tropes, and oh my god, urban legends span so much further beyond horror movie tropes. Like This is something that is all in folklore, but I can see why Scream just being what it was didn't allow the level of space that needed to happen for this to succeed in the same way. Although I'm still happy with it. I still think it's super entertaining. I love Brenda as a villain. I think she'll do so well in March Madness. (laughs) Yeah, I think so too. 
And again, happy birthday to our listener that requested this. If you ever want to request a movie or send us an email, definitely reach us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com and or feel free to follow us on Instagram at thehorrorspodcast for updates and polls and things like that. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.